Current Accounts, the Heinrich Foundation's trade podcast. I'm Stuart Patterson. In 2001, when China joined the World Trade Organization, China accounted for about 4% of global exports. Last year, that had risen to 15% of global exports, despite the fact that global exports value was augmented by the steep rise in energy prices and commodity prices generally, in which China is not a major exporter. If, if one drills down into the more technology-orientated sectors of manufacturing exports, which are largely captured in two broad HS sectors, that's the harmonised standard way of identifying industries, HS85 and HS84, you'll find that China has a market share of about 26% and 22% respectively, which uh, by anyone's estimation is giving it significant oligopolistic power. This rise in China's export prowess globally has been uh, a reflection of the degree to which it's garnered market share in manufacturing. And in 2021, China had about a 30% market share in global manufacturing value added. Now, Xi Jinping is on the record as saying that in his view, self-reliance in science and technology is the foundation of national prosperity and the key to national security. So in this episode of Current Accounts, we're going to be talking about trade dependency in the technology sphere. And to do that, I'm joined today by Emily de la who is the co-founder of Horizon Advisory and a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy. Welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me. Emily, can I just kick off with a broad question? Um, I mean, obviously, China's manufacturing dominance has grown dramatically in the past 20 years. Uh, But in the popular conscious, a lot of people still think of China as the factory of the world for low-end consumer products, textiles, toys. Is that view entirely out of date now? Short answer, yes, it's out of date as a perspective. And I could list an entire spectrum of higher-end products in which China dominates market share whether those are solar wafers and ingots for solar panels or high-speed rail or 5G telecoms equipment or EV batteries and EV themselves. I think a more interesting story perhaps is how China's reached that point, like what the process is by which China moves from those lower end points in critical value chains to the higher value add of them. And the really important thing underpinning that progression is that that's China's ambition. If you look at Chinese industrial planning, Chinese economic policy, the goal isn't just make money. The goal isn't just self-reliance, although, as you pointed out with that Xi Jinping quote, that's really, really important. The goal is dominate global market share in critical areas, because combined with self-reliance, China sees that as a way to exert leverage and project power internationally. And even if it doesn't necessarily come at a profit in the short term, to make a profit economically and strategically in the longer term. That, that's really interesting, Emily, because, of course, there's a narrative out there that, you know, China's dominance in manufacturing is a function of low costs and scale and just general proficiency, and that therefore it is, in fact, a sort of a market-driven outcome. But what you're saying here is that 
this dominance in technology is part of a big master plan. It's part of uh, a state-driven strategy. Exactly. And that doesn't mean that low costs and scale don't play in. But those low costs and scale are enabled by the state strategy. Costs are lower because the Chinese government provides subsidies, provides low-cost energy, in prioritized area lowers environmental regulations. Scale is enabled because the Chinese government encourages vertical integration or horizontal integration, and in some cases picks champions and encourages them going out in the international system in order to build as much scale as possible. Um, so all of those are you know, market results or market advantages, but all of them are amplified and encouraged by the Chinese government. If we're looking at a sort of a state-driven acquisition of market power, maybe we should drill down into some examples and some specific products in which China appears to have come from nowhere or, or been a mere assembler of a part of a product and has actually gone on to obtain significant global market share. What, what would be your sort of choice of products to illustrate this? It's an amazing playbook, and you see the same thing really happening across sectors that China prioritizes. Probably my favorite case as an instructive one is the solar energy industry. Um, that's an area where in the 20 aughts, mo mostly US and European economies really controlled the value chain. They had the advanced technology um, moving from polysilicon, which is like the upstream input into solar panels, solar ingots, wafers, cells, solar panels. And it was at that point laughable that China would ever have the technological capacity necessary to even play, let alone rival those players. And it hasn't been that long, but starting then, beginning with the process of obtaining international technology, including through joint ventures, through acquiring companies that went out of business, and through forcing transfer of technology for players who wanted to operate in the Chinese market. Chinese players you know, began to enter, began to develop technological competencies, beginning at the upstream of the value chain, beginning at the process of polysilicon, and then moving down to the higher value add steps. Obtaining the technology was the first step. Then China's effort was also enabled by major state subsidies that included a process of moving a lot of the production to Xinjiang, where Beijing's industrial policy benefited from effectively no environmental regulations, abundant energy, including coal, with low cost of energy being the major differentiator in the polysilicon to solar process, and to an extent, slave labor, but that's a different question. And over the past decade, China has gone from being a non-existent player in the solar value chain to being effectively the only player. China produces something like 80 plus percent of global polysilicon and has market share of between 70 and 90 percent at every subsequent stage in the value chain, such that you pretty much can't find a solar panel out there that's not made with Chinese input. The irony will probably not be lost on our listeners that China, I think, last year permissioned about six times as many coal power plants as the rest of the world combined. And yet uh, it dominates the industry that seems to be most crucial to the rest of the world's transition away from fossil fuels. So that's a great clear cut example of China capturing an industry through the use of heavy industrial policy. You mentioned the acquisition of technology there, and obviously there are different ways that can happen. 
Can we focus perhaps a little bit on the telecommunications industry now? Because clearly the transition from 3G to 4G to 5G sort of coincides with the expansion of the internet into the sort of internet of things, as it were. And those of us with a long enough memory will remember that at the 3G stage, China was really nowhere. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that their own 3G rollout was delayed for local technology to catch up uh, so that they could actually have a local champion or a, a corporate that championed the local technology. And yet here we are, uh, not that long later, and, and China seems to be obtaining a monopolistic position in 5G and future generations potentially as well. Do you have some strong views as to how that happened? Uh, yes. Definitely. Before I go into this, one quick beat that I wanted to hit in the solar case is that the solar case is great. It's a playbook that's been established across other industries. The same thing has happened in high-speed rail, and this will lead into the 5G point. And yet China keeps deploying the same approach in new critical industries, whether that's with the C919 or in telecoms. And the world kind of is still surprised every time. And still every time, you know, on the eve of China's dominance, says, oh, no, China's never going to be able to make a plane. Oh no, China will never be able to make an advanced semiconductor, as if we haven't seen the same game play out multiple times. Which I think leads directly to the telecom space, because this is, China's already pretty dominant at this point, but there's still some degree of eyes shut about it, or at least assumption that China's capacity equipment technology isn't good enough. But just setting the scene, I'm glad you used the phrase catch up because that's the phrase China uses when it talks about 3G. There are these pretty common graphs you see or diagrams in Beijing's discourse about telecoms ambitions that there's a line going up and to the right and it says 3G catch up, 4G parity, 5G leapfrog. And that's Beijing charting its path to dominance. How has China gotten there? A part of this yes obtaining technology from the international system through licit and illicit means. And all of these interrelate, a part of it leveraging China's industrial capacity at keynotes in the value chain. So if China is the dominant producer of Internet of Things modules, for example, which it is, that's a leverage that then gives China access to, for example, technology of the players who are one other step down the value chain, and also gives China leverage over standards that are being set in that field, which serves to lock in its capacity. And then a third beat here is just the reality that China is a centralized and a big system. That reality means that the Chinese government can say, okay, infrastructure, telecoms infrastructure, this is a priority. We're going to put a lot of capital now into building out the necessary systems for it at the necessary scale and the necessary industrial backbones at home and internationally. And infrastructures, they benefit from network effects. Scale really matters. Having that ability to make the high, high investment in the immediate for the sake of the longer term strategic advantage, that's pretty huge. And it's something where free market economies that depend on companies that are operating on a shorter term time horizon that want to be providing their shareholders with value in the immediate and therefore are leery of these kinds of major capital expenditures. This is a major asymmetry to China's approach and really, really helps its effort. Now, Emily, you, you mentioned their Internet of Things modules. We in the UK um, were very late, 
I think, into recognizing the security implications of Huawei and the, the 5G network. But we are waking up and other countries too. And quite recently, there's been a number of papers published in the UK pointing out the sensitivity and the data gathering potential of the Internet of Things, as well as the potential for weaponizing control over devices that are run over the Internet through various backdoor methods of, of accessing these devices. Two questions, really. Firstly, is it too late for the rest of the world to actually get involved in the manufacturing of the hardware that is involved in the Internet of Things? Has China just entirely hoovered up that market now and it's too late for us to break into it? And secondly, how important is that in terms of immunizing ourselves from the potential uh, for China to disrupt our lives via the Internet of Things? Do you see it as a real threat, the potential for them to do that? Great questions. Um, I really hope it's not too late. I don't think it's too late. But the contest with China for telecommunications, the Internet of Things, but really like the global architecture has to, as you just laid out, start with a contest when it comes to industrial capacity and manufacturing the core inputs that are going into this. And I think the world is at more of a disadvantage than is generally recognized. That part of that is a function of where the conversation is. At least in the U.S., a lot of the conversation is at the highest value nodes of the industry chain. And there, in a lot of cases, there's a little more parity or there are a few more international players on the scene. But if you go just a couple steps up, so lower value add in the value chain, it's really all China all the time. You go, you have conversations internationally or even in the U.S. with private sector players, and you say, look at all the dangers of reliance on Chinese technology and Chinese equipment. And their response is, great, those dangers make sense, but what's my alternative? Which underscores the extent of the challenge. I maintain that there is still time. And part of the reason there's still time is because just the technological revolution that is the information era and that is the Internet of Things era, that's still very much underway. And as long as we're in that period of flux, as long as the architecture hasn't yet been established and built in, that means, at least to my mind, that there's still time to compete. But we... 100% have to. And part of the reason we have to, going back to your actual question, is because of how China sees, frames, and pursues the strategic value of an Internet of Things era. China's you know, big overarching like theoretical calculus here is very much that we're going to be entering a new environment where information has become a, if not the most important factor of production where it matters not only because information in its own right is valuable, but also because the flows of information will shape the flows of every other factor of production, whether that's labor, capital, technology. Therefore, that if you can control information and information flows, you can control the world. You can decide which ships and whether they go at all. You can hold those at risk. You can understand what makes people tick, what information they're absorbing, how you can tailor that information to shape people's opinions, perceptions of the world, and therefore their activities. And you can, of course, have constant access to the most cutting-edge technology, information, what have you. A lot of hand-waving and very big picture, but that's China's ambition here. And to my mind, that's a very scary one, both when it comes to norms, values, 
whether human rights or trade. And also just when it comes to the idea of, I guess this is a norm too, but a fair global system where there's a chance that markets work, there's competition, there's a chance for economic prosperity for all. So Emily, in terms of the the depth of our trade dependency in the technology space on China, there's perhaps an out-of-date mindset that China is as much an assembler as it is a manufacturer. And therefore, that if tomorrow all trade ceased with China, that other countries could fill some of the void in terms of assembly. I mean, obviously not immediately, but that, you know, uh, the old fashioned view of China as importing components from Japan, Taiwan, Korea, putting them together and shipping a product out. That, that obviously, there's an element of truth that remains in that. But it's less so now, isn't it? The value added the domestic value added in Chinese exports is much higher now, particularly in the tech space. If, if actually all trade with China were to cease tomorrow because of some cataclysmic event, whether it's uh, an event in Taiwan or, or somewhere else, what products would we very quickly find that we were missing, that we might not have been aware of, that actually came from China and that we simply can't function without? And there are probably a lot more than we realize. One big category that I think is critical for answering that question is the upstream of value chains, the early stage inputs that are critical and that go into a host of later stage industrial applications or technologies. So rare earths are like the very overused, or they're very important. They're also, if not overused, then at least like hyped in the narrative example of this. But there's a much, much bigger basket of them many of which are controlled by China in terms of the source itself, but also where the processing. Others, and even more of them, where the processing is controlled by China. And value chains depend on those. You can't have the later stages of the value chain if you don't have the first stages. And I think that's where, even to the extent that there's now a conversation about critical minerals and dependencies on China, that's where if interconnection stops tomorrow, we're really in trouble. And examples, I mean, include polysilicon in that solar case. This includes aluminum. It also includes like the critical inputs, upstream inputs into semiconductors, which isn't really talked about in the semiconductor conversation, but really, really matters. And there's a whole other sidebar we can go on here, which is that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has actually exacerbated this kind of upstream dependence on China because there are a host of critical resources like this that were and still are very much Russia dominated. And now, you know, China's importing all of those from Russia. So strengthening its hand over this basket of critical resources. Yeah. So so I suppose some people listening to you here will be thinking, well, if they recognize the threat from China, we, we take that on board to cultivate an alternative source of supply in the hardware. Is that not going to be so expensive as to sort of in fact, obviate the risk mitigation, if you like. You know, the, the, the reason that market economies are offering such higher levels of productivity and such higher levels of per capita income than the more planned, centrally planned economies is because we allocate resources efficiently, because we pay attention to the returns on capital. If we go into a period of really heavy industrial policy, are we not in danger of actually distorting our own economies to make them more like China's? And yes, we might achieve some self-sufficiency, but the cost we'll pay for that will be very, very high in terms of 
the diminution in our lifestyle. I want to start by flipping that question a little bit around. If we are about to rethink our market strategic business frameworks to try to cut away dependence on China um, or China's distortive effect, that creates a huge market opportunity. That creates the potential for market players to reap outsized value, make a lot of money off of it. Here can new players come in, new trusted players, and capture new steps in the value chain that they've been squeezed out of, um, or create new manufacturing, technological, industrial platforms and networks that create new solutions to what were dependencies on China. I think there's value here. I think there's market opportunity here that needs to be part of a positive conversation, rather just than thinking about this as something expensive because we're going to have to think in new ways. But part of the reason I think I think that and the underlying logic is that I don't think the only way or the best way to compete with China is to try to mirror its heavy-handed centralized industrial policy approach. That's how China competes. It's not how free market systems are going to compete. And the issue isn't that we shouldn't allocate resources efficiently. Um, the issue isn't that China has proven free trade doesn't work. The issue is that China has been distorting free trade. And China has been distorting the way we allocate resources. Um, so to my mind, the effort is less... Let's all adopt centralized industrial policy, heavy-handed processes that mirror China. And much more, how do we actually buckle down and protect the free market, free trade system without doing so in a way that opens the, wind, you know, opens the door to China to continue to distort it and to continue to establish leverage over trusted players, over the international system? And how do we do so in a way that actually promises this kind of outsized market value, this kind of opportunity to positive players? So if I understand you correctly there, you know, looking at this problem, we, there are two potential routes one could go down. One could say, well, our economic structure has to become more like China's in order to mimic it. You're saying, no, that, that's not the preferred option at all because of the social and political ramifications of that, as well as the economic inefficiencies. The other way, though, is to basically cut China out of the global trading system, or at least the part of the global trading system that pertains to these security risks so that market-driven solutions can produce uh, the right results without the distorting effect of, of interaction with China. Is that, is that a fair summary of what you're saying there? Yes, it's a simplification, which is, you know, comes from how I presented it, because of course, what is it China's 20x percent of global manufacturing? We can't cut that out overnight. But you know, grossly simplified, there are two steps. One is actually imposing costs on China for distorting for breaking market rules and imposing costs on private sector players who go along with that. Um, and step B is activating private sector players so that the incentives from creating alternatives are evident and are seizable. So, so the CHIPS Act, if we could just briefly talk about that, I mean, that is quite heavy handed industrial policy in a way. But would you sort of support the idea of more punitive tariffs on specific products out of China in order to protect market orientated players to nurture those industries and also almost a sort of infant industry protection argument uh, for friendly providers or reliable providers uh, within the sort of democratic world? And I suppose linked to that, what has to happen to the sort of institutional trade architecture that we operate under? Is WTO a barrier to this kind of building resilience into to trusted supply chains? Or can WTO actually be used to um, help facilitate this? Or do we need a sort of democratic trade block 
which sort of where, where, where we agree that we will not use national security exemptions against each other because we're trying to nurture critical mass in, in key industries within that block? Yeah, these are such good questions. Um, starting on the tariffs thing, I mean, I would put, put that under the umbrella of imposing costs on China for distorted practices. And yes, there's you know, tremendous value in that. It's part of playing defense. And but two things. First of all, those have to be implemented in coordination with, I mean, I'm from the U.S. perspective, so I'm going to say U.S. allies and partners and or the global system, because otherwise they're not effective and they really just impose costs on the player, implementing them rather than on China. And the other step is that one of the big issues with defensive measures thus far, like tariffs, is that they haven't been partnered, um, and this is again from the U.S. perspective, but they haven't been partnered with the proactive. So things have gotten expensive, but nothing has come in to fill the gap in many areas to be an alternative. I think that's a function of two things. It's a function of a sense that from the market that none of these tools are actually going to stick, that it's a short-term blip, and then we're going to revert to the status quo. So you don't have to go in and take the opportunity and or there isn't a long-term one. And that's partly a narrative issue and a messaging issue. But it's also just that you have to create the realities such that it is possible for market players to come in and fill the gap, and they're somewhat incentivized to do so. In some cases, I think that's a function of lowering regulation. In some cases, it's a function maybe of sweetening incentives a little bit more, like actual incentives, not just lowering barriers. But then, of course, that leads to what the international architecture that can help do this and coordinate this among trusted players is. And I really don't know, because I don't know if we've actually, we as a global system, have tried to use the WTO to the extent possible to do this. My instinct is that it's a clunky instrument. It's one that, in its own way, to overuse the word, is a little bit co-opted. But it's worth trying because it's an institution that exists and we're going to have to use global platforms. And then if that doesn't work, it's worth either figuring out how you can make the WTO work or finding a new platform. One thing just overall framing-wise, though, that I'm inclined to you know, just push back word choice is whether we're talking democracies or whether we're talking free markets or market economies. And I think market economies is the orienting principle here rather just than democracies because it's a question of international trade rules and international economic rules and international economic prosperity, not just of government ideology. So maybe the moral of the story is that it would be naive to believe that China could have 30% market share in global manufacturing and that we in the West would not find ourselves beholden to supply from China. So Emily de Bruyere, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And uh, we hope to have you back on Current Accounts another time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.